principles of sanctification. We've already said what it is that enables us to be moral people, the image of God and renewal in that image. We've talked about the process of sanctification, various factors in uh, our sanctification, uh, be it the law of God or repentance or the means of grace, what have you. And now we've discussed the decision-making process in terms of proving the Lord's will. It's an important ethical concept in the New Testament, and the ability to prove the Lord's will comes from a development in one's ethical life, uh, experience in righteousness. Now I want to go on and talk about uh, two other elements in, in uh, the decision-making process or that bear on the decision-making process in uh, Christian sanctification, two elements that are often misconstrued or often not mentioned. Uh, in discussions of this subject, uh, conscience and emotions. But before I do, I wonder if you have any questions about the material up to this point. I think Richard, you had one? Well, uh, in the discussion of baptism uh, earlier, I just wondered, in, in light of what you were saying, uh, would you kind of agree with, with Meredith Klein in the sense that inherent in the symbolism of baptism is an idea of cursing as well as blessing. Well, what is the, what is the goal or purpose of this question? What, well, what are you getting this, at? This uh, came up in my mind as you were discussing the whole idea of, of baptism uh, as being a thing of cursing to the child that grows up and, and becomes a covenant. Oh, okay. You're you're talking about my earlier discussion of baptism, not the the, the later um, illustration of the Reformed Baptist and the Pado Baptist. Uh, yes, uh, I have no difficulty with the idea that all of God's uh, covenant signs involve uh, uh, cursing and blessing, depending on one's response. Is that all, John? Do you say then that the Holy Spirit is the agent? process of sanctification, the one who applies the word you mentioned about it, God's word is true. Yes. Qualifies in the sense that the Holy Spirit is the one who's applying it to us. Well now, John, as long as you don't mean that the Holy Spirit is the only power in sanctification, because the Bible teaches us, in some sense, God's Word is a power, a discerning power, a sanctifying power in our lives. And the Reformed churches have always taught that it's the Word you know, and the Spirit working together uh, that perform these things in our lives, and that's absolutely true. Um, in a sense, every lecture I give you is taking a certain amount of knowledge for granted. And sometimes I take knowledge for granted, I oughtn't, and sometimes I dwell on things that I don't need to. But all through that discussion of the process of sanctification, I was taking for granted that we realize it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to do these things. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins can't do anything for themselves. How would you just briefly make the distinction between the word as the power of the word and the Holy Spirit? What is the distinction? Well, the Holy Spirit is a personal agency that affects our lives. The word of God is an aspect of God in the sense that it reflects the mind of God but the Word of God is not personal, unless we're speaking of Christ as the Word of God, which I'm not doing here. But I'm speaking about the actual revelation of God's mind as it's been inscripturated in this book, that this is a power that is used by the Holy Spirit to be sure, but there's a resonant power in this Word to discern and to, and to, uh, and to do something to me. 
Um, yeah, the word never operates apart from the spirit, and so if you're if, if you're asking me, can I draw a diagram to show how far the spirit's work goes and where the word picks up, or vice versa? I can't do that, but I can distinguish the different senses in which uh, there are powers resonant in my are resonant um, operative in my sanctification. Uh, the Holy Spirit is using the power of the word um, to sanctify me and to harden others, but uh, the word itself has a power to do that. You want, why don't you push your question in another way so I can try to get at what's bothering you? No, I, I know I've read those passages before. The Lord is power trying to work out just how that relates to the Holy Spirit, too. Say if the Word never operates outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, then trying to make a demarcation between the Lord, seems like. Well... Maybe it would help to get back to a little more magical conception of the Word of God. I've already been against magical ideas tonight, but... Um, you know, in the ancient world, uh, when a prophet spoke, that word was considered powerful. Prophets didn't simply predict things. Prophets didn't simply describe things. But their words were considered, in pagan cultures, to have a kind of a resonant mystical or magical power in them. So that when an oracle was spoken, that oracle itself did things to people. All right? Um, and there's a sense in which that's true of the Word of God. See, I'm, I'm trying to come at it from another angle so you can kind of pick up the notion here. Um, God told Abraham that no Word of God was devoid of power. The Hebrew word devar is anything too hard for the Lord? Is any devar too hard for the Lord? That's he incorporates the idea of the word and the thing here. If God speaks his word, isn't it a word of power that will accomplish what it predicts? Yes, it is. And so Sarah will be with a son in a year's time. And Elizabeth will have a child. And Mary the virgin will have a child. In each case, you see, we have this recurring use of the, of the phraseology, the word of God's not without power. Every word of God will accomplish its end. And so there is a kind of, it, it's, you know, we're, we live in a very rationalistic age in a sense. And, and if you can break out of that and bring in a little more of the, uh, of the ancient idea of a magical word, there's something to that. The word of God has the power in it to do things to us, spiritually speaking. Now, of course, that's always within the context of the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's the Word here and not simply the Spirit. Or, if you will, the Word does... The Spirit does not add words to the Word of God. Okay? So, what the Spirit does is to be conceived as somewhat different than what the Word does if for no other reason that it's the written Word that is doing this to us within the context of the power of the Spirit, to be sure. But nevertheless, the Word itself has a resident power. It will condemn or it will bless. Other questions? Go ahead, Paul. You're talking about the fear of God. Uh, when you're mentioning uh, terror and dread, that particular aspect of fear. I was just wondering if the Christian experiences that type um, of fear of God. I do. I think what you want to say is, should a Christian? And the answer to that is twofold. Yes, a Christian should to the degree that the Christian sins 
In fact, the Christian ought of all men be most fearful because he knows very well what God shall do to sinners. Um, but the Christian shouldn't fear God in the same sense that he shouldn't fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. And knowing the perfect love of God, and if we dwell in the love of God, we ought not to have reason to fear. But if we sin, we have reason to fear. Yes. Uh, should we fear the day of judgment? While we're sinning, yes. Because any time a Christian is caught in sin, it's casting doubt upon um, his salvation. Now, that isn't to say that once you're saved, you are not always saved. But it is to say some people who presume to be saved and yet live lives of uh, filthiness and unholiness and unrighteousness and disobedience before God will demonstrate that, in fact, they aren't saved. And so any time that we are living in perpetual sin or living in sin, we have reason to fear the day of judgment, too. And that should have a sanctifying effect on us so that we turn from our sins, repent, and be made right with God, you know, minute by minute, uh, if need be. You see, that sort of thing... <laughs> I don't want to deny the doctrine of, uh, of, of security. One ought to have security. But it's a security by God's grace, and that grace is realized as we are continually turning from our sin and clinging to the Savior as our only hope in this life and the life to come. And consequently, um, to say, should we fear or should we not fear, it's not like a light switch, you see, where it's on or off. Uh, it's not that kind of question. It's, it, it's a matter of what are you doing in your life? Do you have reason to fear? And um, I think there are days when we ought to fear the judgment of God. And the judgment will be more severe for those who profess their Christianity, who know the way of uh, righteousness and, and uh, the way of life, the word of life, and yet don't live by it. And so, I'll tell you, that, that should have a sanctifying effect on us. Um, it does, I think, when I stop and think about it myself, yes. I just wondering, in light of what you just said, I mean, what should our attitude be say to our our sin, although of course um, we, we need to sin and we shouldn't sin and we don't have to sin, but um, I like you do, I, I, sin, I sin regardless. And so what should, should our attitude be um, towards that sin? Should we say fear uh, God's covenantal person? I know we should in one sense, but what I'm talking about gets back to what Greg mentioned earlier. What about the, the things that that um, so we haven't? Um, what you mentioned in Ephesians 5, where it says we should try to learn to please the Lord. Or what if you know in our sanctification, since we have not come to the point where we are as sensitive to God being we should be, what should our attitude be towards the remaining corruption and our sins in our attitudes and our thoughts that aren't captive to Christ, what should our attitude be towards this sin and corruption in our lives? Should it be one of fear? Of our sin? No, I think we ought to hate and loathe our sins. I think we ought to fear God as the one who has been offended by them. And um, Hegel thought Christianity was um, the most ridiculous of all the religions in the, of the world in one sense because Christianity taught the requirement of emotion. Christians were taught and commanded to love or to feel this way and feel that. 
And Hegel thought that was ridiculous. One can't command emotion. It's passive. It just happens to you. But the Bible does say one can cultivate love, one can cultivate joy, one can cultivate a hatred of his sin. And it's to our shame, I think, if we sit back and say, well, you know, I wish I just hated my sin more. The Bible says, hate your sin. And you can develop a hatred of it. And in developing that hatred, you'll develop an ability to avoid it, too. Other questions? Let's talk about conscience now in, in personal sanctification in terms of this motivational or personal side of ethics. Uh, some scripture passages dealing with conscience. Romans 2.15, 1 Timothy 4.2, Acts 23.1, Acts 24.16, Romans 9.1, Romans 13.5, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 7 to 12, and 1 Corinthians 10, verses 25 to 29. The New Testament stresses the need to train and develop your conscience, which is to say, to improve your ability to discern good and evil. This, of course, is ethical sensitivity an inner witness of one's moral responsibility. In Matthew 6, verses 22 to 23, Christ speaks of the light that is within thee. The light that is within thee. This ethical sensitivity and ability to discern good and evil. The Bible teaches us that the Christian's conscience can be weak or it can be strong, it can be injured, it can be ignorant, and it can be ignored. And those passages of scripture I gave you speak of these things. Should one always act according to his conscience? Not when his conscience goes against the word of God. Let's look at Luke 11.35. Jesus says, Look therefore whether the light that is in thee be not darkness. He's <laughs> a good teacher. That's a mixed metaphor, isn't it? Or it's a contradictory metaphor. How can the light in you be darkness? Well, the point is that which in you, which should be light, conscience guiding you correctly, may in fact be darkness. One might have a seared conscience or a hardened conscience or a calloused conscience. And so acting according to conscience is not always good. And remember that when you get ready to plead an excuse for your sin. <coughs> well, I was just following my conscience. <coughs> Didn't Jiminy Cricket teach that one's conscience must be his guide? <laughs> well, he wasn't totally biblical in what he was saying. However, the Bible does say that acting contrary to your conscience is always bad. Look at Romans 14. Verses 22 and 23. Do you get the point? Acting according to your conscience is not always good. But acting contrary to your conscience is always bad. Isn't that right? Those of you who know your logic know very well that's possible. That is, it's always wrong to violate your conscience, but it's not always right to follow it. <laughs> I 
If your conscience says something is bad, you must never do it. Because that which is not of faith is sin. Whatever you can't do in assurance, in faith, is sinful. You're going contrary to your conscience. Your conscience says it's bad, and yet you do it anyway. But sometimes your conscience says to do things, and it turns out the light within you is darkness. That's why I brought up the logical point. You'd understand that one has to add the, the, the negative qualifier. Whenever the conscience says, don't do, and you transgress, then you're sinning. Even though the conscience may not be giving you good advice. For instance, let's say somebody's been brought up in a fundamentalist culture and just cannot shake the idea that having a glass of wine is sinful. Well, that person, even though the Bible does not say that having a glass of wine is sinful, that person, if he takes a glass of wine, is sinning because he's violating his conscience. But on the other hand, if my conscience says, well, you know, a little act of adultery here, probably not so bad, that is a case of the light within me being darkness. All right? My conscience doesn't say, oh, it'd be evil not to have an adulterous affair here. You get the point? Sometimes conscience says, do something that you ought not to do. But anytime conscience tells you not to do something, then you must not do it because you would, in fact, uh, be acting contrary to faith and assurance. Well, conscience uh, is one subject that uh, is not discussed very much in ethics, but emotions is something that's discussed, uh, if at all, often on a very weak, I think, platform. What place should emotions have in ethics? It's always a great question for people who have been brought up in the Reformed Church or who are Calvinistic and have learned not to follow the errors of Pentecostalism. Should you ever follow your emotions in making an ethical decision? What I'm bringing up here is the general question of guidance. What role should emotions have in guiding us? You see, there are some, it's almost a reformed uh, cliche, there are some who would say we should never follow our feelings. And yet there are others, Pentecostalists, who insist we must follow our feelings. And where do we want to stand on the issue? Well, we want to stand on the issue where the Word of God stands on the issue. What's that? What about Paul at Athens? He was enraged with the artist. Yes, okay. But now, we need an example of emotions guiding a person in an ethical decision. You see, he perceived the immorality of it, and that immorality enraged him, right? So he got up and Yeah, that may have motivated him to do something. But my question is, should we do things, should we be guided by our emotions, not just impelled by our emotions, following what our mind already says? If the emotions are guided by the word Yes, but sometimes the problem is in perceiving and applying the Word of God. And there the question is, should emotions, emotions be any help to us? Well, let's think of, just think of how emotions function ethically in the Bible. And I have all sorts of notes here to go through this and don't have time to go through them, but one example, joy. Just think how, how joy functions in an ethical way in the Bible. Hebrews 12:2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, according to the Bible, did all these things with an eye to the joy that was set before him. Here we have joy in the sense of an inward motive. Joy is an indwelling motive. In John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy 
may be made full. In Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. There are many emotions which function in Scripture in ethical ways, as ethical motives and ethical context. Now, if living the Christian life involves a regenerate heart, if it involves, through regeneration, a real change of life, and if part of life is emotions, then living the Christian life in regeneration should involve Christian emotions, Christian passions, a change in our emotional structure. Now I realize that I'm you know, saying things that are reprobated by any number of Christian counselors today. But aware of the wrath of men, I do believe this is what the Bible teaches, that we are to have sanctified emotions, not just sanctified outward behavior, not just sanctified actions, not just sanctified thoughts, but sanctified emotions. Doesn't the Bible tell us that we are to um, rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep? Have you ever had an occasion where somebody, maybe even somebody who is a friend or close to you, has some terrible thing happen in their life, and yet you just don't feel much about it? Now, you know the right words to say, I'm really sorry, this, that, and the other. But you know very well your emotions are not in that sort of thing. It's kind of a bother to you that there's another problem out of all the other things that have come up this week. Now you've got this. We're all human. That sort of thing happens. To err is human. And to sin is human. And those kind of errors are sinful errors. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And when you don't feel weeping for those who are weeping, then you don't have sanctified emotions. Does the Bible command us to love? What happens when you don't feel loving towards somebody? You say, well, it's just not there. You know, you can't womp it up within you. You can't, you know, God won't hold me accountable for that. I'm just sorry, it's just not there. God will hold you accountable for not having a loving feeling towards your neighbor because the Bible commands you to have it. Christianity actually commands feelings. And there we have a clear contrast between what I think is the secular mind on this subject and the biblical mind. The biblical teaching, without a doubt, certainly is that emotions can be commanded. Emotions can be taught. They can be developed. They are our responsibility. We are to, arou we are to arouse the proper emotions within ourselves. God wants us to do it, and therefore we must do it. The Bible tells us that when Christ came into the world, in a sense, he came in part to give us new emotions. And of course, there are some people still around today who will get upset if you preach that. Christ came to give us new emotions. And you do have to make a few qualifications. Um, but what bothers me, about myself, by the way, but about others as well, is that I think there are some people who just hate to think that redemption should make you emotional. especially given my Presbyterian and philosophical background, I know what it is to have that kind of thing. You know, people who just kind of gush with emotion make me crawl a bit, you know, just <laughs> hold it in, keep it to yourself. But the Bible says redemption should make us emotional. Of course, not everybody's equally emotional, just as not everybody's equally intellectual. Not everybody expresses emotions in the same way. 
Some people feel comfortable clapping in church, to other people's don't. Should we all feel comfortable saying amen in church? Yes, the Bible tells us we're supposed to say that. And so what do we do with people who say, nah, shouldn't do that sort of thing. It's out of place in church. You know, we need to have a proper view of the dignity of worship and all that. Well, I mean, can we sometimes outdo the Bible in terms of the proper emotions of the moment? Well, our emotions, whatever they are, however great their intensity, must be brought captive to Christ, the Bible says. They must become Christian emotions instead of non-Christian emotions, just like we must have Christian thoughts instead of non-Christian thoughts. And we must have Christian behavior instead of non-Christian behavior. We need to take delight in the things that God takes delight in. We need to weep with those uh, over those things that our Christian brothers weep over. We must loathe those things which the Bible teaches us to loathe. But Yes, I'm just coming to that. What happens if our emotions beat our intellect to the punch? All right? What if there is a discrepancy between our emotional feelings about something and our intellectual understanding of that thing? All right, I'll give you an example. Here's this uh, properly taught and upbrought Presbyterian Calvinist who goes into a Pentecostalist church where people are jumping up and down and walking in the aisles and saying things out loud and clapping their hands and amening and doing all that sort of thing. And he walks out and he says, you know what? Everything that I've learned says that's wrong. And yet my emotions say, they really love the Lord. And it felt good to be there. Now, does the Bible call for you to take a bucket of cold water and pour it on those emotions and say, no, it's wrong. Your mind says it's wrong and therefore it's wrong. Or should you? Is it ever right to stop and think, maybe my emotions on this point are more sanctified than my thinking? Is it ever possible that your emotions can get ahead of your mind in terms of sanctification? I dare say it's possible. It isn't to say that you should go back and say, well, whatever I learned was wrong. My emotions are right, my thinking is wrong. Any more than one should say, my thinking you know, is, um, is, is right and my emotions are wrong. My point is, I think that one's intellect and one's emotions should be used as um, not counterbalances. That would give the wrong idea. It's not a little bit of both. But I think they should, they should check each other. I think sometimes our emotions can be holy emotions. And that we can, in that situation, the illustration I gave you, we can, we can find out that maybe our intellect wasn't right in what it was teaching us. Maybe the Word of God doesn't fully say all that stuff about putting down emotion in the worship service. And that feeling of, yes, you know, it really makes me happy to be a Christian. And these people feel that happiness is right. Now, I'm not suggesting, you know, that there's any element of Pentecostalist worship that is justified purely in terms of emotion. I'm suggesting that emotions can sometimes make us rethink the conclusions we've come to. For example, I keep thinking about, uh, for my daughters and the unmarried people here, it's looking for the mate. You're, you know, people... I think we usually uh, tend to go on emotions alone, uh, but in a way, uh, I don't know. In that situation, what about emotions? Now remember, I am not teaching that emotions alone ever give us guidance, or that emotions alone can ever cancel 
what our intellect has come to a conclusion from the Word of God. What I am saying is that our emotions can sometimes, because they may be more sanctified in a certain area than our thinking, cause us to rethink the issue, to go back and study it again. I think that happens, by the way, um, when you read a book sometimes. You know, sometimes you read a book and um, there's no particular place in the margin that you put the X that says, there's the error. And yet it just doesn't ring true. You know, your emotions just aren't with it. And so, um, I mean, you're, you say there's something wrong here. What does that force you to do? Well, if we were purely rational creatures, we'd say, look, no X is in the margin. There's nothing wrong. Therefore, it passes. No, our emotions sometimes make us go back and read it again. I'm suggesting that that should happen in our sanctification of our thinking as well. Sometimes our emotions should lead us to study a matter over again. Of course, the only norms that we are to follow are the norms of God's Word. And I do want to come back. This is the standard Reformed teaching, and I haven't deviated from it yet, and I want to make sure you don't think I've deviated at all. God's Word alone is the standard. Sola Scriptura. But my suggestion is that sometimes our emotions can be like a little buzzer saying, maybe you haven't read that right. You know, maybe you haven't applied the standard correctly. All right? What I've been stressing over and over again tonight is that sanctification is not purely an intellectual process. Okay? I've said that in any number of ways, and my point about emotions here can, can be summarized in that way, too. Now, I, I suppressed some questions a few minutes ago to get to this point. Uh, Greg? I was just wondering on that diagram of the uh, motives yeah. and the norms and the goals. Where would emotions fit on that? Um, under the person, on the personal angle, the, the people we are, the moral agent, the motivational or existential angle on ethics. So then, how about like as far as goals? Wouldn't you be uh, doing uh, or making ethical motions in order to to reach the goal of a of a good emotion? Or at the end, it seemed like that verse Hebrew twelve two for the joy set before him yeah. was a goal. Yeah. And we ought to work toward joy, too, that his joy might be fulfilled in us. So it would be in both of those places, the motives and the goals. Yes, remember how the arrows run back and forth from all those angles? Well, when all is said and done, that's a convenient way of categorizing things, but it's not a watertight division. You can't have the motivational standpoint without the, the teleological or goal standpoint, and you can't have either one of those without the standard. It turns out that that is just one continuous process of feeding into each other in the Christian's life. Is there any way that you can see emotions fitting in the norm part of it? Yeah, Standard if if God's word tells us that we are we are to seek the joy of the Lord, and that's a norm, isn't it? It's also a goal, and it's also a motive. Sure. Remember, these are perspectives. They mustn't ever be thought to be separate, you know, because each one requires the others, and therefore. It's convenient for teaching purposes to start with this perspective and this perspective and add it so that we're trying to get a, a, a balanced conception of ethics. Um, but I don't mean to suggest that you can somehow, you know, cut them off so that they're, you know, completely um, uh, autonomous and, uh, and sufficient to themselves. Well, what are some of the models 
in terms of sanctification that the Bible gives us. We talked about the kingdom of God, the glory of God, and the enjoyment of man as the goals for Christian ethics. Now we're coming to a similar place in our discussion of the personal side of ethics and sanctification. What are the models that the Bible gives us for holy people? What kind of people does God want us to be? Well, the first and I think most obvious model is that of the fruit of the Spirit. Is the fruit of the Spirit something that replaces the law of God? Or something that is a substitute for the law of God? Well, let's read Galatians, the fifth chapter, at verse 22. I know a lot of people have difficulty. How do you take these various ethical ideas in the Bible, like the kingdom of God, another idea of the fruit of the Spirit, another idea of the law of God, how do they relate to each other? Well, it turns out they relate to each other when you understand the different perspectives. One deals with goals, God's kingdom. One deals with norms, God's law. And another deals with the moral agent, motivations, or the type of people we should be, the agent himself, the fruit of the Spirit, attitudes that should be realized within him. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Granted, these are not laws. They are attitudes. They are uh, traits. They are character traits that are to be realized in our lives. But the very authority of these character traits over us, according to Paul, is that there is no law against them. God's law does not condemn these character traits. And that, you see, goes to show you how Paul would never pit the fruit of the Spirit against the law of God. It's precisely because the fruit of the Spirit is not against the law of God that it's authoritative. But what we want to talk about is the fruit of the Spirit here. As one of the paradigms, or one of the motivations, one of the models of character traits that the Christian should have. The background to the teaching on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is the contrast between spirit and flesh. And one should understand here that the contrast is not between the idea of the fleshly body of man and the desires of the flesh, meaning bodily desires, and then spiritual inward attitudes, you know, like the mind versus the body sort of thing. Rather, the background of spirit versus flesh is the Holy Spirit versus sinful nature. The sinful nature of man develops certain things, has a certain harvest and certain fruits. And the Holy Spirit brings forth a harvest of fruits in the life of a man too. Now you will notice that Galatians 5 is not the only place where you have a contrasting catalog of uh, character traits for the Christian and vices in the unbeliever. Look at Romans 1, 29-31, or Romans 13, 13, or 1 Corinthians 5, 10, or 2 Timothy 3, verses 2-7, or Titus 3, verse 3. There you have similar catalogs of vices and virtues. Now, four classes of sins are mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. Well, not in the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the flesh. Uh, the fruit of the sinful nature. By the way, if you want to understand that contrast between spirit and flesh, let me recommend that you read Romans 6, 7, and 8, 
as good background in Paul's teaching elsewhere for that similar contrast. But now getting to the fruits of the flesh or the sinful nature, there are four classes mentioned by Paul in Galatians. First, he mentions sensual passions, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, or licentiousness, excuse me. Then he mentions unlawful spiritual dealings, idolatry, sorcery, the use of drugs. Um, and then he mentions violations of brotherly love, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, factions, schisms, and parties. And then intemperate excesses, envyings, desire to deprive one another, uh, drunkenness, inordinate use of alcohol, revelings, carousing, orgies, and so forth. Having mentioned these classifications of the, of the sinful nature's harvest, he goes on to the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible tells us in Matthew 7 that by a man's fruit he is known or evaluated. In Romans 6, we learn at verse 21 that before conversion we brought forth poisonous fruit. That is, the fruit of our life showed that we were in fact sin. We were in darkness and we brought forth not the fruit of the light, Ephesians 5, 8 to 11, but rather the works of darkness. And so now Paul calls certain characteristics or traits in us the fruit of the Spirit. Paul reminds us that these fruits represent what God has graciously done in and for us, not what we could do for ourselves or willingly engage in. Now these are not like the gifts of the Spirit which are given to select believers. These are the fruit of the Spirit, the harvest of the Spirit in all believers. The fruit of the Spirit is comprehended in the first one mentioned, and that is love. Paul says that love is the most excellent way in 1 Corinthians 12.31. It's even greater, according to Paul, than the, than the spiritual gifts. A better way than the spiritual gifts, says Paul, is love, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. And so everybody should desire the fruit of the Spirit, even though we don't lust after the spiritual gifts, like tongue speaking and so forth. All right, now Paul gives three classifications of the fruit of the Spirit. First, attitudes of mind, love, joy, and peace. Then relations with others, patience, kindness, and goodness. And then principles of conduct, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What was that middle one uh, The second category was relations with others, patience, kindness, and goodness. The third, principles of conduct, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, you've got to resist the idea, however, that Paul provides a complete or exhaustive list of Christian traits. These are representative fruits of the Spirit. They're not everything the Spirit does, but they're good examples of what the Spirit does. Alright? What other Christian virtues can we list then? Or other virtues that the Bible stresses in terms of sanctification? Well, over and over and over again, of course, the Bible speaks of an ethic of love. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned, but it's handled elsewhere in the Bible, totally apart from a mention of the harvest or fruit of the Spirit. And so Christian virtues such as love must be spoken of in any uh, adequate class on ethics, I think. Let me give you some examples of, uh, of other models of spiritual living, however, in the Bible, and then I'll come back to love and talk about uh, love a little more in detail, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that today. All right, other descriptions of the Christian life found in the Bible. Ephesians 6, the Christian soldier. Colossians 3, the new man. 
1 Corinthians 3, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, children of the light. Philippians 3, citizens of heaven. Hebrews 11, men of faith. James 1 and 2, doers of the word. You'll find other lists of Christian virtues compiled in the qualifications for church office in 1 Timothy 3. You'll also find an extended discussion of Christian wisdom in James chapters 3 and 4. Moreover, Christian ethics calls for looking at portraits of godly character in Scripture and imitating biblical heroes. Paul says we are to walk in the steps of our father Abraham. Many times Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And thus the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 give us guidelines for ethical decision making. In Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Hebrews 13.17 says that Mickey Schneider is uh, one of the models as well. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. That is, those who lead and, and rule in the church are to be models that we are to follow as well. So the Bible has numerous models or paradigms for spiritual living. I just want to stress that point. We can't study them all tonight. Okay, but in all of those, of course, the fruit of the Spirit is often mentioned and love is, all, is often mentioned. I want to say a few words about love now. Three prominent virtues which have historically been treated as central to Christian character are faith, hope, and love. And as Paul tells us, of course, among these three, love is at the top. The greatest of these is love. Love clearly can be called the primary motive in ethics, then. Jesus said that love is the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, obviously, is the chapter in the Bible that gives the lengthy description of love and what it means. And in fact, it teaches us that all other spiritual gifts are worthless unless they are accompanied by love. Jesus said that love is the mark of his disciple. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one toward another. And so instead of talking about the Ten Commandments, instead of talking about the kingdom of God, one could have a full course in Christian ethics just talking about love. Can I give you an aside? Personal favor. For those of you who have had an ethics course from me, would you remember that I said that? Ethics can be taught totally apart from a discussion of the kingdom of God and the law of God. Well, I say totally apart. The structuring device of the course need not be these things. One can teach the fruit of the Spirit and love, and he'll cover all the rest. Of course, you've really got to teach love as the Bible teaches it, and then you'll incorporate the law of God anyway, because if you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. But the concept of love in the Bible is a central concept for ethics. It is one that is an adequate summary of Christian ethics. Well, I say totally apart. The structuring device of the Course need not be these things. One can teach the fruit of the Spirit and love, and he'll cover all the rest. Of course, you've really got to teach love as the Bible teaches it, and then you'll incorporate the law of God anyway, because if you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. But the concept of love in the Bible is a central concept for ethics. It is one that is an adequate summary 
of Christian ethics. And the concept of love in the Bible begins with the concept of covenant loyalty. In the book of Deuteronomy, for example, there's a tremendous emphasis on the love God's people have for him. And that love's essentially a love of loyalty, covenant loyalty to God. It's exclusive loyalty to the sovereign, to the Lord, a refusal to make any co uh, comparable alliances. It's the acceptance of his authority as the only final authority for faith and life. So thou shalt have no other gods in my presence is the position of the love commandment in the Decalogue. Love means exclusive loyalty, the exclusive loyalty of a servant to the Lord. Now this has many ramifications to it. There are always people who want to make a very sharp contrast, a very dramatic con uh, contrast between the concept of love in Deuteronomy and the love in, say, Hosea. In Hosea, you have a much more emotional concept of love, we're told. People sometimes want to say that in Deuteronomy, it's just a political allegiance. Whereas in Hosea, it's a matter of emotional involvement in a personal relationship. My personal feeling is that that's a very superficial reading of the book of Deuteronomy. Because if you have the kind of political loyalty described in Deuteronomy, it's going to fill your whole heart and soul. You're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Everything you do is going to be engaged in the service of God. And so that means your emotions are involved. Your whole life is involved and affected by this very personal relationship between you and the Lord. The Lord speaks to the servant in an I-thou kind of way, in a personal way. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so the relationship is deeply personal. In the New Testament in particular, this is found in the Old, but in particular in the New Testament, notice how our love is to be after the model of how Christ has loved us. Loving others should be after the model of Christ's love for us. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 12, brings out that analogy as well. Now, what's the precise point of the comparison? Jesus says we are to love each other as he has loved us. And how has he loved us? He's speaking of the atonement. His point is that he has given his life for us. He has atoned for us. John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's the love of God. That's the supreme example of love. Romans 8, 39, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing, created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10 By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a propitiation for our sins. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and following. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. 
2 Thessalonians 2.16 Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Well the Bible over and over and over again makes the atonement God's redemptive love a model for our ethical behavior in relationship to one another. That self-giving of Jesus Christ is the focal example that should govern the behavior of his disciples. Philippians 2.5 Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Likewise, 1 Peter 2.18-25 The focal example is Christ giving his life for his friends, for others. And so Christian ethics means, if nothing else, a self-renouncing spirit that is willing to lay down your life in the interest of your brothers. That means you place their interest above your own. That you willingly bear their burdens, especially when there is no chance of reimbursement. And one of the most difficult things to learn, it certainly is one of the most difficult things for me and I think for all of us, is to learn to bear the burdens of others when there is no hope that we're ever going to be repaid. You must remember that that is how Christ loved us. Christ did not love us because he thought we could ever repay the debt. Herein is love, you see, that we love even as he loved us. And he loved us without any hope of reward. Jesus came into the world, laid down his life for sinners who had no love for him whatsoever, who couldn't pay back his sacrifice. And thus Jesus commands his disciples to seek out the poor and the maimed and the blind, those, you see, who can't pay you back, those who are ugly and those who are sick and those who need a physician and those who don't say the right sorts of things or smell the right way. But you see, the ones that we love are the ones like us, the ones who can repay the favor. And I'm sorry to say that, but I'm including myself in the indictment. It's very hard to love like Jesus did. Love, according to the New Testament, let me add, is both an example as well as a motivating power. Uh, love, you see, is a model after which we should um, behave, according to which we should behave, but it's also an inner principle that impels us and drives us. First uh, John 3.17 But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see how love should be doing something to you, should be motivating you to live in a certain way. Um, boy, there's just so much to say. One more point about love. Please notice that love, very often, is a positive principle. And it's not something which is merely implemented in a negative way. Let me give you an example. In, in the law of God, we find a lot of thou shalt nots. All right? Thou shalt not kill. Is it sufficient to say that one has fulfilled the law of God and has loved his neighbor if he simply refrained from hitting his neighbor or killing him. 
No, because love is a self-renouncing thing. It's placing another's interest above your own. It's seeking his good before your own. And consequently, you see, love takes a positive approach. Love seeks out ways of doing good to others. Imagine somebody who said, well, no, the law of God says don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Now, I'm going to be a perfectly loving person by sitting around in my apartment watching TV all day and reading the Puritans. Now, depending on whether you like reading the Puritans or watching TV. Maybe you like to do both. But you're, the point is, I'm just going to stay away from people, you see? I won't, I won't commit any adultery and I won't lie to anybody and I won't uh, kill anybody. I'm just going to avoid all the negative things and I'm going to sit around to myself and just do the things I want to do. Of course, you'd commit very few sins, you might think that way. My point is you'd only commit fewer explicit violations of the law of God than other people. In fact, you would be rationalizing your um, disobedience to God. The love commandment is fundamentally an obligation to seek out other people in the way that Jesus Christ sought us out. It's to seek out opportunities to serve God, to seek out opportunities to serve man. Not only is it avoiding evil, it's pursuing good. And so in the very nature of the case, love seeks its responsibilities. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love Christ, you will seek your responsibilities. You're going to seek to apply God's law. You're going to seek opportunities to do good to others. Okay, so the love commandment means a positive implementation of God's law and not simply avoiding what what God's law forbids. We might also add as Christian virtues gratitude. We could add hope and trust. We could go on and on, but time won't allow us to do that. The fruit of the Spirit, love, the Christian soldier, the temple of the Holy Spirit, gratitude. Any number of things in the Scriptures can be used in terms of the model or the paradigm of holy living in Christian sanctification. Freedom is another thing that could be mentioned as a model. And I'll just add a couple of sentences. I, I've got to get on to other subjects here. Jean-Paul Sartre is one who is, uh, in the secular world, promoted the model of, of ethics um, in terms of freedom. The genuinely uh, ethical act the authentic act, according to Sartre, is the one done out of pure freedom, not by any prior constraints or restraints, not by any externally imposed model or standard of behavior, but the act which is truly free, that is genuinely done out of freedom. It's not without surprise, then, that in the model, uh, in the in the novels that Sartre has written, that his characters are constantly screaming out against the horrible burden of freedom that is upon them. The burden to do those things which comes strictly out of their own gut feeling and not because somebody else tells them to behave this way, not because God tells them to behave this way, not because their parents have taught them to behave this way, not because of some constraint on them or a social moray or some judgment that's going to come from other people. And so the truly authentic and free act is the act which is done without any guidance. And Sartre recognizes that's a form of condemnation 
and it's a real burden on men. I am doomed to have no other law but my own, says Matthew in Sartre's trilogy, The Age of Reason. And so freedom, what is supposed to be such a blessing to man, becomes a curse in Sartre. So much so that Sartre says at one point, hell is other people. Why would that be? Sartre says hell is other people because other people are to make their decisions out of, a, out of total freedom also. And of course, if they are totally autonomous, a law to themselves, then they're an obstacle to my freedom because they could make use of me as a means to their own ends. Consequently, other free agents in the world become competitive with my freedom and, 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 and take away my freedom and challenge my freedom and restrict it. And so hell is other people, says Sartre. Freedom, God gave freedom, of course, to be a gift to man. Freedom becomes a curse in Sartre. The biblical concept of freedom is not, I think you've heard this over and over again, but I'd like to make the point once more time, freedom is not, you see, the idea of a train off its tracks. You know, just willy-nilly doing what it wants. Freedom, according to the Bible, is the ability to stay on the tracks and to move in the way God wants you to. The psalmist says, I will walk in freedom because I follow thy statutes. James speaks of the perfect law of freedom, the perfect law of liberty. And so freedom is a model of Christian behavior, the freedom which the Holy Spirit gives us. But it's not a freedom from God, it's a freedom to do what God says. Well, in this section of our course, we've been trying to uh, study the motivational perspective or the personal perspective on ethics. We've been trying to give a general portrait of the Christian moral agent and to describe how he matures in Christ and specifically how his sanctification helps him to gain assurance in his ethical decisions, how his sanctification enables him to know what is the right thing to do. Uh, we've studied uh, matters like the good conscience. Uh, we've studied uh, love and the freedom of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. All these things are ways of teaching ethics to other believers. We need to know what motivates our ethical decisions, how the new man within us develops and grows, how Christian virtues, how Christian wisdom and knowledge, love, joy, and peace come about within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can sum it all up by saying we've been studying the motive of Christian ethics. Okay. A couple of weeks ago we were looking at the goal of Christian ethics. We've now looked at the motive of Christian ethics. In one sense, the motive of Christian ethics is love. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So love will drive us to the standard of Christian ethics. The fruit of the Spirit is precisely approved of God because against that there is no law. And so the motive of Christian ethics, again, drives us to the standard. We said that our emotions should check our intellect. However, our emotions should always check our intellect to make sure that it conforms to the standard of God's law. When we are proving the Lord's will, we are gaining ethical maturity to apply the standard of God's law. So the motive, Christian ethics, drives us now to a consideration of the law of God. If one wants to pursue the goal of God's kingdom, he must know how to do that. And God the King shows us how we bring about his kingdom by telling us what his will is to be done on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And so the goal drives us to study the will of God found in the standard of his law.
Now I propose to go on in the remaining few minutes and introduce us to the question of God's law and Christian ethics. This is another personal aside, I'll make it quick, but would you please remember as you relate this course to others, to outsiders, that it took us this long to get to the law of God in Christian ethics? There's an awful lot in Christian ethics, you see, an awful lot. We could study the kingdom and the goal and the situation for a whole term. We could study sanctification and personal matters and motivation and models for a whole term. And likewise, we could study the law of God for a whole term. I've only given us one week to do each one of them. I've kind of slopped over a bit. This week's going to be a little bit of both. But next week, we'll finish up a study of the law of God and some other questions having to do with moral standard. Before I get to that now, are there any questions about sanctification and the motivational or personal side of ethics? When you were speaking of the conscience, I was kind of thinking... Basically, all the conscience have is veto power, then. That's it. That's one way of putting it. Yeah. Conscience should... Well, it should be a light within us, too, you see. I think it does contribute confirmatory um, uh, attestation to that which we perceive as an objective standard of the good. Our conscience should agree with that, too. Other questions? Everybody knows how to be personally sanctified now. But remember what I've taught you. Knowing how and doing how are different things. I hope that um, for all the fact that I'm trying to get through a, you know, a lot of notes here and get a lot of information out, that you won't miss the occasional and the very well-meant-from-the-heart uh, exhortation that you be sanctified people. As we begin the normative perspective on Christian ethics... Um, obviously, I'm going to be talking about things which I have discussed at great length in my book, Theonomy in Christian Ethics. Uh, theonomy is just another way of saying God's law. Theonomy. Theo from theos means God, of course. Nomi from namos in Greek meaning law, meaning God's law. Now, if theonomy is God's law, that stands over against what? Autonomy. In Greek, autos can also mean in proper grammatical setting, self. And namos, we've said, means law. The basic, the basic, and obviously this is not all the details, I'm not getting into all the applications, but the fundamental point that I'm trying to drive home in my book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, is that God's word, God's law, must be the standard of ethics. God's law is the normative approach to Christian ethics. And that's and those who will not use God's law, I believe, are, are eventually consigned to have no logical recourse but to use their own self as a law, some form of self-law in opposition to God's law. The point of my book is that the content of the biblical norm comes from God's revelation, the scriptures themselves, from God's law. Let me um, try to, this is kind of preview matters right now, okay? I'd like to give you three deadly dichotomies in ethics. There's probably five or six, but I'm only going to talk about three. Three deadly dichotomies. Number one, 
A contrast between nature and grace. All right. Remember, in, in, especially in the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic um, uh, scholastic theologians taught that there were two sources of moral guidance. One comes from the realm of nature, one comes from the realm of grace. The first being natural law, that studying of creation and, and the consideration of reason, uh, how that directs one's life. And then there's the study of revealed law in the realm of God's grace, teaching us religious ethics as well. That's a deadly dichotomy. God says that we are to love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and his law has been given to show us how to do that. Every area of life is covered by God's revelation. And thus Paul can say in 2 Timothy 3 that instruction in righteousness sufficient to make us adequate for every good work is given in the inspired scriptures. And so, as Reformed people, we do not want to pit nature and grace against one another as separate sources of morality. Because the minute you do that, you'll find that grace points one to God's law and nature to autonomy. And once the autonomous principle enters ethics, it will eventually eat up the theonomous principle. The minute you allow nature a separate place and authority, God's word will eventually suffer. You will diminish the authority of God by dilution, if nothing else. But I suggest that there is an imperious force to nature such that once it is allowed, self-law is allowed, it will drive out God's law. Didn't Jesus teach that when he said that the Pharisees added to God's word their own traditions and thereby made void the word of God? You notice how Jesus didn't say that by doing this they simply increased their moral obligations. That is, they expanded the Word of God improperly. In, in trying to expand it, they actually ate away at it. They made it void. Well, if the Roman Catholic Church might be considered one great example of the error of pitting nature versus grace, we have in the dispensational church another kind of deadly dichotomy in ethics, and that's the dichotomy between law and grace. Uh, sometimes that dichotomy is very crassly put as the uh, dichotomy between Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, the rallying cry of many early dispensationalists, of course, were uh, abusing Paul's words, misapplying them, but using Paul's words, we are not under law, we are under grace. We don't live by the Old Testament, we live by the New. The Old Testament was for the Israelites, the New Testament is for the Christian church. All right. God has two different polities, God has two different ways of dealing with men, God has two different dispensations. Actually, he has seven, in some cases five, some people say six, and I've even seen eight. But nevertheless, there's at least two, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Dispensation and the New. And it is considered uh, a sign of legalistic bondage that anybody in the realm of grace in the age of the New Testament would appeal to the law of the Old Testament for ethical guidance. Well, how would the Bible respond to this? Remember we noted the Old Testament law has to do with all of life being covered by God's revelation. Paul says that every good work is covered by Scripture. It turns out also that if you study the law of the Old Testament, it's presented precisely in the context of what? Grace. God's law was a sign of his grace. And the psalmist could say, grant me thy law graciously. But if you look at Exodus chapter 19, 
prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, the epitome of God's law. Exodus 19.4, you, ha you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Not just I delivered you through the Red Sea, not just that I delivered you on eagles' wings, but in so doing I brought you to myself. God said, I loved you. I drew you to myself. Jesus talks about being drawn into the kingdom of God. God says that he has done that to the Israelites. Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spake all these words, saying, Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. No, God spake all these words, saying, First of all, I am Jehovah your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, it's in terms of God's gracious redemption that he gives his law. Paul can actually teach in Romans that the law serves the promise. The law was added so that the promise given to Abraham might be fulfilled. In Galatians, the third chapter, Paul says, Is the law against the promise? God forbid. The law of God cannot be pitted against God's grace and against his promises. And certainly in the New Testament that's true. In Titus, the second chapter, Paul teaches that redemption and God's grace has appeared unto all men, teaching us to renounce vile deeds and to produce good works because Christ has redeemed us from every lawless deed. Redemption is precisely so that we might keep the law. Paul says, do we make void the law of God through faith? God forbid. We rather establish the law. Romans 3.31. Romans 8, verse 4 says that we are to walk by the Holy Spirit precisely because the Spirit fulfills the ordinance of the law within us. Jesus said, don't ever begin to think that I came to abrogate the law of the prophets. I did not come to abrogate. I'll leave it to you to decide what fulfill means. The point is that he did not abrogate. Why not? For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall by any means pass away from the law. I'll let you decide what all things being accomplished means. But whatever confirm means, whatever plerao, fulfill means, excuse me, whatever all things being accomplished means, verse 19 tells you the application. Therefore, whoever teaches the breaking of even the least of these commandments shall be called least in the kingdom of God. Now, law and grace cannot be pitted against each other. It is simply contrary to the text of Scripture in Old and New Testaments, and it is constantly a contrast which is embarrassed by the text of Scripture at every turn. The third deadly dichotomy is not a dichotomy taught so much by the Roman Catholic Church or by the dispensationalist churches. It's a dichotomy that is of recent vintage even within the Reformed churches. And that's the dichotomy between spirit and letter. Or, if you will, the contrast between the thrust of the law and the details of the law. Or if I can take it another step further, a contrast between the tenor of what the Bible teaches and what the actual text of the Bible says. I don't know how often, like the sands of the sea, I suppose, I have talked to people who once they are told what the text and the details and the letter of God's law require, will resort to, but the feeling and the general thrust and the tenor of the whole New Testament is against that. 
And I want to suggest to you that, that just like the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod that we heard about this weekend, that is an insidious error. It's one that once it, it is an error that once it gets into you will drive and drive and drive toward the most deadly conclusion in ethics that one can in fact depend upon his own feelings for the tenor and the spirit and pit then his own law against the exact details of God's law. The issue over and over and over again throughout the history of the church, whether it be the medieval Roman Catholic Church or the dispensationalist church or even the current day Reformed Church, as hard as that may be for some Calvinists to believe, the error is always theonomy versus autonomy. And I don't mean the title of my book here, but I mean it's God's law as written. We must go to God's law and ethics, only to God's law and ethics, and to all of God's law and ethics. Let's go over that again. We must go to God's law and ethics. We must go to the letter. Only to God's law and ethics, not in terms of nature and grace, and to all of God's law, not New Testament versus Old Testament. God's word covers all of life by all of the word in textual detail. Jesus once indicted the Pharisees because he said, you're so very good at tithing your garden vegetables, and yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, love and mercy and justice. And that would be just the sort of thing you might want to grab onto to show, well, what we need is then is the broad principles, the spirit and the tenor of the thing, right? And Jesus says, this you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. Jesus says it is wrong to avoid the details. He says even the least commandment must be observed in the age of the New Testament. But of course, all things must be read in context and according to their proper place and importance. But the fact is that the text of God's word must never be sub we must never substitute our own feeling for the thrust of God's word over against the text. We must never pit New Testament against Old Testament. We must never say something outside of Scripture in the realm of nature can contradict what God teaches in the realm of grace. In all these areas, the issue is whether God's law and God's law alone will be our guide. If it will not be our guide, then we are logically driven in some form to appeal to autonomy. And so God's law covers all of life by all of the word in every one of its textual details. Now, one last preface, one word of one last word of preface before we go on to the actual outline in the normative perspective on ethics. We have up to this point put emphasis on the situation of Christian ethics. We've been looking at the goal of ethics. And we've secondly emphasized the moral agent and our motives in ethics in order that it be clearly understood that we are not wooden legalists in our study of God's law. We're not going to be talking about a dry and boring form of casuistry in this course. Rather, we're going to be looking at a law which the Bible says is for our good. Okay? So if we start up here with the standard of ethics, which is God's law, you notice that it's going to drive us to study what is for our good, the goal. God's law is for our good. 
And God's law, according to the Bible, is the very definition of love, which is our motive, one way of summarizing our motive in ethics. And so the law is a way of speaking of love, and it's a way of pursuing our good. Now, this isn't, you see, dry and boring casuistry. It's something that's loving, and it's for our good. I think it might be good to close on that note by reading the 19th Psalm and how the psalmist looked upon the law of God. Some legalistic detail that dries up one's spiritual life. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night shows knowledge. There is no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run his course. His going forth is from the end of the heavens and is circling unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. What word of God is being exalted here? The word in creation and providence, how God governs all the universe by his word. And the psalmist immediately goes on, the law of Jehovah is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Jehovah is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Jehovah are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Jehovah is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Jehovah is clean, enduring forever. The ordinances of Jehovah are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the droppings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Clear thou me from hidden faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be clear from great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Jehovah, my rock and my redeemer.